right. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll begin reading, as we have for the last few weeks, in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, in my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There aren't many passages to preach in the Bible that would make a, a pastor or a preacher more self-conscious than this passage. That the Apostle Paul, who inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired author of half of the New Testament, would say, I didn't come with brilliant speaking or wisdom, but in weakness, fear, and much trembling. So I'm not trying to persuade you with my words, but to see the Spirit demonstrate His power so that your faith will be in God and not in my wisdom. If that's going to happen today, we need God's help. 
So let's pray together for that. Father, we are thankful. We are thankful that what you want to accomplish in us, you are fully sufficient to do that today. So we ask you to come in the power of your word, in the power of your spirit, and do this work in us. For some, Father, maybe today is the day of their salvation. Call them to life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For all of us, we need to turn from sin and trust in Jesus yet again. We need words of encouragement, comfort, or strength. We thank you that you are sufficient to do all of that. And we pray you would for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. God's salvation of his people is through his wisdom and power so that we can only boast in him, we can only proclaim him, and we can only have faith in him. So let's begin that this morning by looking at his people, verses 26 through 28. I prefer the the CSB version of that passage where it says, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. You know Paul is about to say something hard when he begins to use familial language. Brothers and sisters. It's not always true when Paul uses brothers and sisters that he's going to say something hard, but when he says something hard, it's often true. He reminds them, hey, we're family here, and I have this relationship with you. Understand that. Now, to understand why this is a hard word, you have to get the context. He he has spent 18 months in Corinth, around 50 AD, proclaiming the gospel seeing people come alive through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Disciples of Jesus were were born, and a church is birthed. And he spent considerable time investing in these people heavily. He leaves and leaves some of his most trusted disciples to, to, to continue to shepherd the church, Timothy and Silas. He makes his way eventually to Ephesus, and he receives word through letter and eventually a visit from Chloe's people that this church is heavily divided. This church is split into four primary factions, all claiming that they have loyalty and follow this one particular uh, person. And Paul will hammer this issue of unity throughout chapters 3 and 4. And so this issue of unity is going to come up again and again and again. Now, it was very common in the Greco-Roman culture of Corinth to have your favorite leader or speaker. You kind of go all in on one of them saying, he's the best, or I'm on his team, I'm wearing his jersey. I think he's the most gifted, talented, strongest, and wisest one. And the criteria that you use in the Corinthian culture, the Greco-Roman culture, to to make those determinations are purely external, worldly, non-spiritual. In other words, um, and, and this was a recurring problem for the Corinthians, that they were taking the way in which they had experienced the Greco-Roman culture, and they're just bringing it right into their follow their following of Jesus, right into the church. In other words, they didn't leave all of that behind. They didn't understand fully, and Paul would have to teach this to them, teach this to them throughout this book of Corinthians to, that the gospel saturates all of life. The gospel changes all of life. You can't just have this lifestyle and tag Jesus onto it and say, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, even though my life doesn't really look very different than it looked before Christ. No, Christ moves in. He takes over. 
The gospel saturates everything and changes everything. And these Corinthians struggled to understand that. They would have to learn that. And it begins here in this issue of how they evaluate who the best leaders are, how they follow leaders, or who, which leaders get their loyalty. And they were basing it strictly on worldly or external evaluations. And it was causing a problem. And so Paul is chipping away at their understanding of who is wise and who is important and who is strong and who is impressive. Is it going to be these people who have this speaking ability, these orators, these rhetoricians? Or is it going to be someone who's experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ, someone who's experienced the power of God? In other words, Paul is telling them, according to God, you're pledging your loyalty to these leaders based on the ideas you value and characteristics that you think are important. But according to God, you have it completely backwards. The wisdom of this world we looked at last week is passing away. The wisdom of this world is not even greater or stronger than the wisdom of of the power of God and his gospel. And now, we saw that last week, now, today, he's applying that to them personally. In other words, this plan of God to do away with the wisdom and strength of the world through his gospel and to show his way is better than the ways of the world is illustrated in your life. You guys have experienced this. God's gospel is the complete opposite of what the world thinks is wise and powerful. A crucified Messiah, that's offensive to the Jews. A crucified Son of God, that's foolishness, ridiculous to the Greeks. But in God's economy, it is wisdom and power. This is the gospel, Paul is saying. And now verse 26, this is you. This is what you've experienced, Corinthians. Consider this, he tells them. Very strong call by Paul to them to think and consider your calling. Think about how this gospel has changed your life, my brothers, my sisters. Not many of you were wise or powerful or of noble birth according to the standards of the world. Now, two things to notice. He says, first, not many. He doesn't say none of you. There were some people who were saved and became part of the Corinthian church who were wise or powerful or or of noble birth according to the standards of the world. Um, Crispus, Stephanus, Gaius, Erastus, some of the names that we've heard and we'll hear again throughout this letter were considered people of the upper class of the Corinthian culture who came alive in Christ. But most of the church were not comprised of these kinds of people. Much of the church were comprised of people that Paul calls not wise, not powerful, not of noble birth, according to the standards of the world. Now understand that this was not God's plan B. It's not like God tried to save the wise, the powerful, the important people, and they didn't believe, so he's like, all right, I guess I'll just go with these guys. You know, they'll do. I want really, the really important people, but I'll just settle for the riffraff. No, it, go back to verse 21. It pleased the Lord to save those who would believe through the foolishness of the, the gospel proclaimed. It pleased the Lord to take the, the people that the culture considered weak or foolish or insignificant or unimportant to accomplish his purposes and display his glory. In much the same way in which the Lord chose Israel in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, where he says, You are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chose, chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, but because you were the fewest of all peoples. In the same way Jesus in the Gospels is putting on a feast and a banquet, and he's inviting and telling people to go out into the highways and the byways and, and bring in the outcasts and the people who have been thrown away by society. They're the ones who have feast at my table. In the same way, 
we have shared in, and these Corinthian believers had shared in this gospel of God, and it was always God's plan, intentional, to choose these that the world and society says are not important, not powerful, not of nobility. If the Lord only saved those who were considered by worldly standards to be the best of the best, then it would make salvation seemingly contingent on being the best of the best, on being the smartest and the most powerful and the significant births. But as we saw last week, the wisdom of the world is fading. God's doing away with it. And it's not even significant when compared to the wisdom of God. And so why would God make the qualities the world promotes and cherishes as important tied to his free, gracious salvation accomplished through humility, sacrifice, love, mercy, and grace? Why would God have a salvation that would come to us through his love, mercy, grace, humility, sacrifice, lowliness, and then tie it to things that we esteem as most important? That would kind of flip on its head the plan of God to demonstrate his love, grace, and mercy through humility and lowliness. In fact, this choice of God was not only intended to show the world his way is different, but even better. It says there in in verse 27, 28, the weak were chosen to shame the strong, the foolish to shame the wise, the low and despise things that aren't, to bring to nothing things that are. Like everything that seems permanent and long-lasting in our world system things that are, will one day be brought to nothing. Something that our world system, system considers as nothing right now, like Russia and China, North Korea, India, Australia, Canada, even the great and mighty United States of America are temporary kingdoms coming to an end, one day no longer existing giving way to the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ that in the estimation of our world isn't much, doesn't have much power. This goes back, this world system controlled and dominated by sin celebrates and exalts the values of strength and pride and arrogance and human wisdom and strength. It's Genesis 11 when the Lord told the people of the earth to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and In Genesis 11, they pile up in a city and they begin to build a tower. The purpose of this Tower of Babel was what? To make their name great. Let's show the world. Let's show ourselves how amazing we are, how great we are. In the language of the, the Old Testament, it says God had to come down to see what they were doing. Now, it's not that God didn't know. You know, I can't really see what's going on. The clouds are in the way. Let me let me get down low to see what they're doing down there. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He knows everything. But the language is intentional to show us that God had to stoop down to get on their level. You think you're great? I've got to come down to see what you're doing. I've got to get low to see what you're doing. And this is the wisdom and the power and what the world values compared to the wisdom and the power and what God values. And for thousands of years since then, humanity continues to think that we build eternal kingdoms and establish our name by putting our name on buildings and putting our name on on property or land or or making our name famous, putting our name on social media or in papers or or documents. And the Lord continues to have to stoop to see our silliness. His plan of salvation would not come in a way in which our pride, our arrogance, our strength would be validated but it will be crushed, crushed, so that there's no aspect of who he makes us to be that we can take credit for. 
not only in how God accomplishes his salvation, but even in who God would choose to be his people. And I, and I wonder how like our Christian celebrity culture unintentionally feeds the opposite of what God desires. Like when we celebrate the Tim Tebow's and the Chris Pratt's and the Nick Foles, or we go crazy every time we hear an Olympic athlete is a Christian. Oh my gosh, we've got to root for them. Now, certainly it's okay to rejoice when anyone comes to know Christ, but to continually to make much of the powerful and the rich and the famous as Christians, to, to be the ones that we admire and to say things like, man, if this guy, man, if this guy became a Christian, he could really change our culture. Russell Moore wrote an article several years ago answering the question about where the next Billy Graham would come from, and he said this, the next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin Fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might be currently a misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist. The next Charles Spurgeon might be managing an abortion clinic today. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star this week. The next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now, which is actually who Augustine of Hippo was before Christ saved him. God's salvation of us was never intended to make much of us make much of our greatness, but to make much of him, that he would save us, even us. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Because of this great, wise and powerful God, we are in Christ Jesus. One of Paul's favorite prepositional phrases to explain our salvation in Christ. We are in Christ. Our salvation can be understood as a position. We who are far off have been brought in. Enemies have become family. Rebels have become sons and daughters because we are in Christ Jesus. And this is not because of us, he tells us in verse 30, but because of him. This is God's salvation. This is God's plan. And we are placed in Christ, who is the fullest and most accurate expression of God's wisdom. The truth and knowledge of God rightly applied to all of life. The expression of God's character and nature showing up in life. This is wisdom. Wisdom is not just facts, knowledge, truth, but it's all of that rightly applied for the health and benefit of the, the people who are living it out. Like we know people who are smart, who are like walking computers. They have a lot of information in their head, but we wouldn't necessarily call them wise, Right? Sometimes their knowledge gets in the way of their wisdom. Wisdom is rightly applying that knowledge in a way that is life-giving and healthy. And the fullest expression of God's wisdom is Jesus. Because not only did Jesus know everything he needed to know, but he always did what was right and always did what was wise. And in Jesus, we see the fulfillment of God's wisdom upending and doing away with the wisdom of this world that elevates the arrogant, the strong, and the powerful. And this wisdom is defined in Christ in three terms, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Three different word images that God uses to help us understand this wisdom in Christ and his salvation. The righteousness of Christ, the courtroom. When God the judge declares us who are unrighteous, righteous. Because he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of of Christ, the righteousness of God. It is the judge declaring the ungodly godly, not because they got godly, because they were given godliness, credit for the godliness of Christ. 
This is our righteousness, the sanctification, the holiness of God. We are sanctified, set apart as God's people, declared to be holy and blameless because of Jesus' holiness and blamelessness, which was given to us as a gift. And this position of being sanctified is continually worked out in our life as we are continually sanctified and set apart and made holy through the work of God's Spirit in us. And redemption, the slave market. We who were in the chains of sin and bondage to our sinful, fallen natures. And along comes Jesus to buy us back by becoming enslaved and oppressed on the cross to purchase our freedom through his blood. Salvation is a free gift. We cannot earn or pay or buy, pay back or buy, but it is not free. It is amazingly costly. The price required was the life of the only one who never raised his fist in the face of our creator and said, I will be God. The price of our redemption was at the cost of the only one who gave his life, who never ran from the love of his father but always ran to his Father. The price of our redemption was, was the only one who ever looked at God and said, I don't need you. I don't want you. I'll be my own God. And the willing, loving sacrifice of Jesus paid in full the debt we owe because of our sin. And we are brought back, redeemed, purchased by his blood. Our chains are broken and we are fully and forever set free from our bondage to sin. And this salvation is accomplished for us by God, initiated by God, not to those who have proven themselves worthy or deserving, not those whom the world elevates as important or powerful or accomplished, not to those who the world esteems as valuable and worthy of this, but to the dead, to the dead. The weak, the foolish, the low and despised. You see, the problem with self-righteousness is that we begin to see ourselves as pretty good and we begin to think things like, well, of course God would save me. Look at me. Look at all the things I've done for him since I've come alive in Christ. Look at all that I try to accomplish for him. Look at how valuable and useful it is for, for him to have me on the team. And this self-righteousness creeps in and makes us almost think that we have somehow earned or we're deserving of God's salvation. Now, the picture that we should have in our minds when we think about the salvation of God and that he would save us is a cemetery. That's all of us apart from Christ. And what are we doing? We're just in the grave doing nothing. All of a sudden we hear, Lazarus, come forth. Jared, get up. Whoa. What just happened? I'm alive and now I'm running to the one who just called my name in faith and repentance and life. What what could I possibly take credit for in that? All I can do now is boast in him and treasure him and cherish him. And that's what we see in verse 29 and 30. You see, one of the ways you know you're fully grasping your salvation and exactly what God has worked and accomplished in your life is your response is not boasting in yourself, but in Him. Not boasting in your accomplishments, but in Him. 
Our response is not being amazed at ourselves, but amazed at God. This is what God's salvation produces in his people, a people who boast in him, verse 29, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Verse 31, so that as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If God, who the Bible proclaims him to be, has done what the scriptures have recorded he has done, who or what else could we possibly boast in? Why would we give glory and adoration to anyone or anything else, considering who he is and what he's done? Why would we make so much of human leaders that we would, be, that we would allow our devotion and loyalty to them to cause us to divide as a church? Why would we make so much of anything else that we would allow our devotion to that person or that idea or that preference to cause us to be divided as brothers and sisters in Christ who share by God's grace this eternal bond of Christ. Nothing breaks that. Boasting in the Lord doesn't mean that we can't thank and honor each other. Paul's letters are filled with publicly expressed gratitude for individuals with real names, real people. But even in our gratitude for each other, our honoring of each other, it doesn't surpass our boasting in the Lord. He is the ultimate source of all that is good and gracious in our life. He is the ultimate remedy and healing for whatever isn't good and gracious in our life so that in everything we can actually boast in Him. Everything that is good comes from Him and everything that isn't good He is working to redeem and eventually do away with. And the only reason things aren't good are still in our life is because he's still working to use what is good and what isn't good for our good, Romans 8, 28 tells us. And so we boast in the Lord for the good gifts of our family, our spouses, our children, our future spouses, right, single guys? Our future children the Lord will graciously provide through biological birth or adoption, the transformation of our lives through the gospel. We boast in the Lord for this church family that we get to be a part of. Loving each other, loving our city, the jobs that our Father has provided for us, God's provision for all of our needs, the freedoms that we continually enjoy as members of the upper class of the world's population who can do all that we can do and have all that we have. On top of our salvation, our greatest blessing. These are only possible because the Lord has graciously given them to us. And so we boast in Him. Even the intellect and skill that we use to do our jobs are a gift of God's grace. So when we're tempted to be proud and look at what we've accomplished and look at what we're earning every week through our hard work, remember, He's waking you up every day. You're not waking yourself up. He's putting breath in your lungs every day. He's making blood circulate through your body every day. You're alive every day because of him. So even in the temporary uh, earthly things that we enjoy, like jobs and fun times and good food, or in the bigger things, the spiritual blessings that we enjoy, it's all by his grace. And so we boast in him. And when we consider things in our life that aren't good, and this room is filled with that, Sin, sickness, sorrow, death, pain, hurt, relational difficulties, financial hardships, oppression in our world, 
racism, sexism, abuse. Somehow we can still boast in the Lord because we know even in all of that, He is at work to help us overcome and not be hindered, but in fact to thrive in the face of all of those hard things, knowing that one day they will be gone. They will be gone forever. And the power and wisdom of Christ in us, we can actually see and experience victories in all of those areas now, and healing in all of those areas now. Like one day, we will never have another argument with a brother or sister in Christ, with our spouse, with our kids. That's a good day. I can't wait for that day. One day, there will be no more tension or discord or disunity between brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we allow Christ now to help us overcome that, we are experiencing a taste of the eternal state. Up there is coming down here. And we get to savor that. Oh, man, that's good. I know, I know we're going to fight again. Almost 19 years of marriage, we still fight. Y'all still fight, however long you've been married. People who haven't been married very long, you're still going to fight, Right? But when we, when we experience the peace and unity that Christ brings, then we experience the eternal state, a taste of it. And all of this is only possible because of the work of Christ. And so as God's people who have experienced God's salvation, not only do we only boast in Him, but we only proclaim Him. Verses 1 through 4, chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you Accept Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In Greek culture, some of the most popular and prized people were the, the public speakers, the or, orators, the orators, the rhetoricians, uh, the people who had skilled ability and rhetorical speech. And the goal of these public speakers was to persuade and impress to use language and emotion and thought to not only sway the audience to their opinion, but to uh, make the audience impressed with them so that they could gain the affection and loyalty of their hearers. It was not only expected of the public speakers to operate with this style, to really turn it on and just blow people away by their speaking ability and to win them to their argument, but it was expected that the crowds would compare, evaluate, and judge the speakers. Just as normal as it is for us today to evaluate and review everything from products we buy to apps to restaurants to movies to music, so it was normal for them to do this about public speakers. And Paul comes into this culture and he absolutely refuses to cater to that mentality. In fact, he did the exact, the, the exact opposite. He says, in weakness and fear and much trembling. Now, there is evidence that Paul may, may not have been a great public speaker. You know, could it, could it have been related to his public appearance that we see evidence in the New Testament maybe wasn't the most impressive public appearance? Maybe he had been a little bit unsightly for some reasons. Maybe this issue with his eyes. Some say he was bald, which had nothing to do with his public appearance being unsightly. <laughs> Whatever it was, Paul wasn't, we think, the most attractive person to look at. So, so did that hinder his public speaking ability somewhat? Maybe. We know that he was more, more uh, powerful through his letters that he felt like himself. 
His letters were more powerful or persuasive than his public appearance or public speaking. But, but we know that he was a, a capable public speaker. In, in Acts 18, Paul journeyed to Corinth. But before that, in Acts 17, he had been in Athens on the Mars Hill speaking to the Athenian philosophers. And he did a very capable job. Some believed through that public speaking, that public interaction. Festus, he spoke before him and did an incredible job. So Paul may have been more effective and powerful in his letters, but he wasn't horrible as a public speaker. So this is not what Paul is, is speaking about. This is also not this anti-intellectual argument. Paul is saying we don't use wisdom or language to craft arguments or ideas in compelling and persuasive ways. There are places in Paul's letter where he's adopting elements of classical Greek rhetorical persuasive arguments. Paul was an incredible intellectual that was compelling and persuasive that still has the best minds in the world in awe of him and has us at times like Peter, like scratching our heads. Like what he's writing is so complex, we don't know. It could be this or this. We don't really know. What Paul is emphasizing is, I didn't come to jump through your expectations and try and be and do what everyone else does because if I did you would be more impressed with me than you would be in Jesus. You would be more loyal to me than you would be in Jesus. You would put your faith in me and not in God. He could have done what everybody else done and probably been effective, but he chose not to and, in fact, take a posture of weakness and humility and trembling and even be ridiculed so that the power of God would be seen in his message more than the power of the speaker. And so what this looks like for us today could vary depending on the person who proclaims the gospel. And it's not just talking about this setting, this what I'm doing right now, anytime we proclaim the gospel to anyone, or it could depend on who we're proclaiming the gospel to. And so what it looks like varies depending on the, the speaker and the audience, But whatever it looks like, the goal in proclaiming the gospel is not to impress or amaze people with us. To make much of our abilities. It's not we can't be creative or we can't be compelling or we can't even try and persuade someone. But when they finish listening to you, will they be more amazed at you or God? Are you seeking to impress them with your knowledge, your articulation, your ability to argue your position? Or are you seeking to impress them with a crucified Savior? You see, the central tenet of Paul's message was Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the gospel. That certainly wasn't the only thing he talked about. It's just that everything flowed from Christ, Him and Him crucified, and was flavored by the redemptive work of Jesus, His incarnation, perfect life, sacrificial death, and resurrection. And as you and I share this gospel, it's really more of a heart check than a technique check. Only you know if you're seeking to impress somebody. Only you know if you're after their applause and their their adulation. What God desires through his people is that we would be a people who can share the gospel with a heart and a manner that is a demonstration of his spirit and his power. And if we are proclaiming Jesus and his gospel in a way to impress others, so they will be amazed at our wisdom, our ability to articulate theology, our big words, our creative expressions of complex concepts, if that's what we're after for people to boast in us, then we have done what Paul warned us not to do in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest 
the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We have just said the words of the gospel to impress people with us, and we have just emptied the gospel of its power. Because we're wanting to change people with how amazing we are instead of proclaiming an amazing Savior who can truly only change them. The word in verse 4, demonstration, is an interesting word. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. In Greek culture and thought, eloquent speaking was referred to as power. You might think the power of persuasion. Part of a speaker's ability was to be so eloquent that they could persuade, change hearts and minds, and thus demonstrate a power over their audience. Paul takes that word out of the Greek culture and redefines it. His speaking, which is not eloquent or brilliant, but is in fear, weakness, and trembling, is also a demonstration, he says in verse 4, but not of Paul's power of persuasion, but of the Spirit's power. The proof of the Spirit's power wasn't in Paul trying to impress everybody or amaze everyone by his ability, but was in the work of the Spirit and the lives of the Corinthians. It's as if Paul is saying, there is power in what I'm doing, but it's not in me and my skill set. It's in who the the Spirit is and how the Spirit is changing lives. You want proof? Look at the Corinthians who are coming out of this pagan culture and pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ and following him wholeheartedly in a very messy way, as we'll see throughout this letter. But enough for Paul to be able to say that They are his saints. Very similar to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full assurance. Well, what's the evidence for that? You know how we lived among you for your benefit and how you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. We're thanking God for the, the, the gospel coming to them in word and in power and in the Holy Spirit with full assurance. How do we know? Because we lived among you, you saw us, you became imitators of us, and now you are even, even, even living in such a way that you are an example to other believers. The gospel is changing your lives, and that is the evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit in us. See, God, help us be a people who demonstrate his power working in us through changed lives and not impressive communicators. God, help us be a people more known for how we respond and live out the gospel than having guys who are known for their public speaking ability. And, we, and sometimes we feed this mentality because we have guys we like who preach in churches And we go to those podcasts and we only download those guys we like. I'm not saying that's wrong. We're not a member of those churches. But if we were, it would be wrong. Because we're showing loyalty and affection for some and not others. God, help us be a people who love the lost and those without gospel community to such a degree that we, in humility and love, declare the gospel is the way, and that they would be impressed and put their faith in Christ and not us. God, help us be a people who are being so transformed by the Spirit and Word that our message of the gospel is so authentic it must be believed. 
because it is so visible in our lives. Like we'll see in 1 Corinthians 14 when unbelievers are coming into the midst of their worship gatherings and saying, God is here. I don't believe in him. I'm not one of him, but I know this. He's here. God, let that happen in all of our lives where even when people don't agree with us or believe what we believe, they can't deny the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ changing us because they see a transformed people who are doing things and loving people and serving people and being humble and giving our lives away so that others may know Christ. There's a huge component in this. More than technique, what do you believe? Do you believe this gospel? Do you really believe it? And does it show up in your life in not just words, but in action? Like, let us not be like the Pharisees in Jesus' day for whom he said in Matthew 23, 3, do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach and do not practice. God, help us not be a people who can't articulate the gospel, but who don't demonstrate the reality of the gospel changing our lives. Do we really believe? Is our faith really in him? That's the last point Paul makes. God saves his people through his gospel in such a way, through his wisdom and power, that we can only boast in him, we can only proclaim him and his power, and we can only have faith in him. Verse 5, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Is your faith resting solely in the power of God to save you through his son, Jesus Christ, in the gospel? Faith here defined by one author is this an intellectual conviction of truth and a stance of the heart and will which exhibits trust in God's salvific act in Christ as the basis of life. Faith is an intellectual conviction of truth and a stance of the heart and will which exhibits trust in God's salvific act in Christ as the basis of life. Faith is not simply intellectual affirmation. Something is true. Even the demons do that, James tells us. Throughout the Gospels, the only group of people who continually rightly knew who Jesus was were the demons. They had knowledge. They did not have faith. Faith in Jesus is not just passing a theological test, but there is a component of truth. So don't swing the pendulum the other way. Faith is blind faith. You're just leaping out into the dark. Faith is in an actual person who actually lived and, and did things in his history, and we have the eyewitness accounts. And the eyewitness accounts were written and preserved and passed along to us so that we, as John would say in 1 John, may have fellowship with the Father and the Son, may have fellowship one with another, that we will be joined into this family that God has been saving for all of time. And that our joy may be full. It's why we have the Bible. And this faith, this belief, this trust is so real and powerful, it leads to a reorientation of life around that person so that everything in life is oriented around him. Faith in God's power and not human wisdom is trusting in the wisdom and power of God for all aspects of our salvation and not on human wisdom or a human way of living life that is anti-God. In other words, I'm saved and changed by the gospel of God and not my intellect, wisdom, strength, and power. I am, we are completely powerless to save ourselves or transform ourselves in ways that we really need to be transformed. 
helpless. We have no shot at this. This, this is the Beatitudes. We, we spent a little bit of time there last week. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not talking about there's a special blessing for those in poverty that they're going to, that like that those who are materially poor are going to inherit the kingdom of God because they're materially poor. That doesn't make sense. But it's those who are spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt. Like we only enter the kingdom of heaven when we put all that we are and can do on the table and it's nothing. I bring nothing to the table. I bring nothing into this relationship except that I am an image bearer that's been cursed by sin and I need a savior. We're completely helpless to save ourselves, completely helpless to change ourselves in ways that we need God's power to change us. And apart from the work of any other person or the power of any other person, which again chips away at the silliness of these Corinthians to divide around loyalty to one person over another. None of those people died for them. None of them can change you in ways that only Jesus can change us. And so when we are tempted, and we are all tempted like this, to trust and put our faith in another person or ourselves or another power or another human method to save us or change us, guys, see how futile that is. Compared to the power of God. The power of God who called everything into existence from nothing, who always accomplishes his purposes. It always carries out the will, the nature, the character of God. The power, we, like we hold up these things that we base our salvation, our sanctification in. Like that's going to change me. And it's silly compared to the power of God. We base our, our, our right standing with God or our right standing with each other or our justification in things that are so transient and temporary compared to the power of God. Like, see how futile it is. Your children's existence, your children's success, their cuteness, their Instagram ability, their achievements are not going to save you or change you in ways that you and I really need to be changed by God's power. And yet we pour so much into that. And we try and get so much out of that. And you know it's always lacking. So then we post again. We talk about it again. We put so much into it again. Your job achievements and successes don't have the power of God to make you a new person. Oh, it might help for a little while. All, all idols are satisfying for a little while, seem to change us for a little while, but not truly change us, and not change us forever. Your income level. Man, if, that, if they just call my six numbers, that'd fix everything. If I just got that promotion or that increase, man... I would, could sleep at night. Your income levels are not on par with the power of God. Amen. You have a Father in heaven who owns the universe, who gives us everything we need every day. That, that's not just dumping, like, here's all I'm going to give you for your entire life. I'm just going to go ahead and put it in your bank. No, he says, give us this day our daily bread. It's how he wants us to live. Totally dependent on him every single day. 
your ability to protect yourself and keep yourself safe. It's not enough to transform your life. Always make the right decision so that you never have to walk in fear and anxiety and worry. You're not going to do it. That's not going to save you. That's not going to change you like the power of God. Our marriages, social media likes and followers, phones, comfort, binge watching, our giving, our church attendance, our mission trips, our theological knowledge, our gospel articulation, the way we serve our city. None of those things will save us or change us apart from God's power working in them and through them. We are constantly fighting the temptation of idolatry to trust in something or someone to change us and save us apart from the power of God. See the futility of that. See the brokenness of our idols. They will continually fail you, but God will never fail you, ever. Your idols have no power or wisdom that matter more than God's power or wisdom. Do you believe this? Is this where your faith is this morning? Our Father in heaven makes us a people who share in this amazing salvation that he would save us, that he would choose us, the weak, powerless, low, and despised according to worldly standards and make us a people who together boast in him, proclaim him and his power and have our faith in him. God help us turn away from anything or anyone that would get in the way of that work of him in our life. God, help us trust in Jesus again. Only he can save and change us. Let's celebrate him. Let's enjoy him. Let's share him. And let's be one in him. As we pray. I just want to give space for a few minutes for the Spirit to solidify some things in your mind, your heart, that He's speaking to you this morning. If it's salvation that you need in Christ, today can be the day of your salvation. You can turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, place your faith fully in Him and His work on your behalf, and come alive in Christ. In whatever ways you need the Spirit of God to change you or, or put down truths today that, that, that you need, encouragement, conviction, challenge, calling you to, to step out on faith and do something He's been calling you to do, I just pray you take a few moments and, and allow those things to solidify in your heart and mind. And if you want to share with us that today is the day of your salvation, that Christ has made you alive today and you've, you're trusting in Jesus as never before, please, please let us know before you leave so we can celebrate that and begin to, to help you learn how to follow Jesus and, and be a disciple of Christ. And Father, I pray you would help us now to respond in worship and song, and prayer, and communion. 
to this work that you have done and you make available to us by your grace. Help us to enjoy Jesus, to celebrate Jesus, to share Jesus, to be united in Jesus. We thank you for him, and we pray all these things in his name. Amen.